it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. No way can you do that. B A S S Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Lookout Landing Podcast. My name is Kate Kruser. I'm the managing editor of Lookout Landing. I'm joined, as I often am, by my co-host slash co-editor slash deputy editor slash right-hand man, John Troopin. John, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm weighted down by all the badges that I <laughs> from from all those titles. But you're you're very well. important. It's just every day I <laughs> stitch another little little badge onto your vest. Exactly. Uh, I mean, today John dropped the word troglodyte on us at 8 a.m. on a Friday morning while we're recording. So yeah, uh, he might have just been showing off though for our guest. Uh, we are very pleased to have a guest on the podcast today. And that guest is Austin Einhorn, the founder of Apiros, which uh, troglodytes like us might know as a gym, Austin describes as an environment for excellence. And Austin is currently working with Mitch Haniger. He's worked with uh, several other high-level athletes, and, um, and he has a really unique approach to training, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So, hello, Austin. Welcome. Hey, good morning. We're so happy to have you excited to kind of explore um explore apiros with you um so just to kind of start out i have not visited the facility i've seen pictures um and i would say that it looks partially like a rock climbing gym 
uh, partially like an elementary school phys ed class, partially like a physical rehab center, a little like American Ninja Warrior feel to it. It does not look like a traditional gym the way people think about it with like, you know, rows and rows of weights, although obviously there's that equipment too. Um, so just describe your space to us. How do you organize your space and how does, um, how does the environment adapt to the clientele? Because it, it seems like there's a lot of flow within the space. It's not always the same thing. Yeah, so the environment I've tried to design as versatile as possible where traditional gyms typically buy one thing to do one purpose and then they buy something else to do something else. And the rules for me with how, how I create that environment is everything has to be multifaceted. There can't be anything that specializes in just one one purpose. And the rock climbing wall came in a few years ago once I made some discoveries about how humans move or, or more, more generally how life moves on earth. And I allow my athletes to play a role in how it's designed. They can uh, choose, you know, how they want to use certain equipment some days and even design certain routes on the wall. Uh, so for me, it, it's constantly adapting to the athlete's needs, which is, I think, what a gym environment should do. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about um, how the body moves or studying how the body moves. And I've seen on your Instagram account, which is a great resource for people who want to kind of learn more about this, um, the Apiros Instagram account. Uh, some images side by side that I thought one that's really striking to me about a tiger moving along and you can see I don't know what the technical tiger term is for tiger shoulders but you can see how the tiger's body is kind of like moving and undulating and then it's side by side with uh, an athlete and how their shoulders are moving so from where do you draw your movement inspiration yeah, it comes from evolution. Uh, we have e each movement pattern I consider a, a living thing, like it has its own ancestry. So for lack of a better term, a push-up has an ancestry back to quadrupedal animals where, you know, hands were paws and uh, four legs were on the ground. And that's also where a, a squat has its, its lineage. And so um, the picture you're, you're talking about shows one of the world's best rock climbers on a wall compared to a tiger uh, drinking some water from a lake. And what we see is despite uh, being two different species, the movement pattern is extremely similar. The human is climbing vertically on a wall, but he has to pull himself so close to it that his shoulder uh, tilts forward. It's broad away from the, the spine and it. There's tension throughout the entire system. Uh, and it's the same way with the tiger drinking from the lake. And so that's where I, I pull a lot of my inspiration and, and philosophy from is, you know, in the last recent decades, we've got massive, massively new understandings about how the human body works when we look at it in a lab and under a microscope. I'm much more fascinated with how movement has been happening on land for the last 400 million years. I want to give that its its prioritization. That's to me the the key point. And then later we might have some values of uh, some more nascent scientific discoveries. Wow. So to me that sounds very much like. Um... You know, we're conditioned to seeing, especially for like John and I, the kind of work that we do, 
we see a lot of athlete off-season training videos and it's, you know, guys pushing really heavy stuff or they're pulling really heavy stuff or they're doing sled drags or whatever. You know, it's it's a lot of the same kind of just moving heavy stuff around from place to place. So this emphasis on movement and specifically like looking back at the history of movement and looking at its origins uh, feels really, to me, fresh and like not something I've seen before or that I see commonly. So what kind of brought you along on this fitness journey? Like what's your background? Uh, my background was uh, I've always liked to move and not only that, I've always liked to watch movement. I have one memory that I like to think of often that, that kind of looking back, I, I've always been destined to be doing this. I remember a soccer game at, at nine or years old and I'm watching a, another player run and he's running in front of me. He's much faster than I am, but his toes are just, his toes <laughs> and his knees are pointing in at each other. And I'm so curious, like, is that what's making him faster than me? Or is that making him slower? Nobody else runs like that. And it's just this open-ended question that doesn't get answered for about 20 to 25 years until I'm doing what I'm doing now. Um, as far as the, the fresh perspective, thank you. I, I'd certainly think so. I understand why people are pushing the sleds around and doing these monotonous things is they're trying to get their muscles to recruit more muscle and, and higher intensities. And sure, moving heavy weight around is, is one of the ways to do that. I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we move a lot of heavy weight at, at the gym. I just don't post about it because it's kind of boring and what everybody else is doing. I want to post novel <laughs> and, and useful things. Um, and so the, but this is where the perspective shift kind of needs to happen is when you push something really heavy, you get your brain to fire an intense signal down to your muscles, which then tells them what to do. You don't always need an extremely heavy weight to do that. You can be in a novel or unique position with no weight and produce a stronger signal than you would with a couple hundred pounds on your back. So to me, it's not, not necessarily the, the external uh, stimulus. It's what is physics, what physical things, uh, and I mean, by force equals mass times acceleration, that kind of thing. What is happening with the body there and how can we reutilize Newtonian physics to trigger, uh, well, preventative ways for injury and evolve performance to new levels. So again, you don't hear a ton of freight of trainers just casually spouting off about Newtonian physics. What did you study in school that has, or what have you studied that's given you this background in movement? Uh, I studied volleyball in school and occasionally <laughs> went to class. <laughs> um, after, I mean, everything that I know now is is a little bit from school. I, I made right, it in you biology. Right, you were a high-level volleyball player at UC Santa Cruz, is that? Yeah, or, yeah correct. Southern California? Uh, no, Santa Cruz, Santa yeah, Cruz. Where, where I still am. And, uh, you know, I studied biology, so I got a little bit of nuanced information about cell biology. I took an evolution class back then, but don't remember anything that I learned there. You know, learned some of the nuanced uh, lingo and took some physics. Um, but everything that I know now is because there was an interest in it and I reinvested into my education with, you know, the wonderful thing called the internet where <laughs> answers can be found anywhere. 
Um, well, I mean, all of this makes sense because if you're nine years old and running behind a kid and wondering, like, why do they run faster than me? To me, that feels like a very, that's a scientist mindset, right? Like, that's what a scientist does is uh, tries to kind of hack into why things are the way that they are. But you're more than just a scientist. You're also a poet. Um, so, again, kind of continuing this non-traditional thing, uh, I don't know that there are a ton of trainers out there who are also writing poetry and, and thinking on that level. Um, so when we talk about the mental side, who do you read? Who's influenced your ideas about the body and about training? Um, what's the role of the mind in rehabbing or training the body? And how's that integrated in your practice? You can't separate the two, uh, in my mind. I mean, uh, we like to separate them because that's how we study it. You know, there's a specialization problem in athletics because we have a specialization problem in our careers. I've developed these the poetry, the writing, and just because I have insane amounts of curiosity and high expectations for myself. So if I'm going to and play, right, too? And There's play. something very playful about the nature of your poetry. Uh, one of the lines that I put in my book um, is, or forthcoming book, is life's too important to be taken so seriously. <laughs> and that's very much what I, I like to embody, uh, not only in my, my training, um, but also in my life. And so, for instance, there's many times where if coaches just ignore the conversations with the athlete and just think of things as oh yeah that's a normal normal thing to be said and let me think of an example um the, the one of the really common ones that just gets overlooked is uh, ideas of, of shame or embarrassment or being not good enough uh, or defining oneself based on one's actions that's one of the most common symbolic viruses in sport is that I am only worthy if I perform well, if I lift this weight, if I have this many statistics. And if you listen clearly or if you've read any sort of philosophy in your life. Or chop wood, carry water. That sounds like uh, some of the ideas in that book. I'm familiar. Uh, oh, chop wood, carry water. I'm familiar with the saying, but not the, not the book. Mm, the, again, the book is very much about like not defining yourself by your, which is a problem in America, right? We define ourselves by our jobs and by our accomplishments and um, by we by what we are and not what we do a lot of times. Right, exactly. And that is a big issue when someone doesn't perform well or a coach is then ridiculing them or praising them based on their actions. It takes... It takes some discipline to somewhat divorce yourself from those opinions, those those actions, those outcomes. And so these are the kinds of conversations that I like to have with my athletes because it somewhat unleashes them from their performance. They don't care about the the outcome as much they, because the outcome's out of their control. What is under their control is their thoughts, their behaviors, their intentions. They can go towards a lift or an at-bat or a um, you know, touchdown run with intentions that are under their control. Whether or not they succeed is somewhat left to chance. And yet, especially in the professional leagues and in the media, they define and critique all these people by their their statistical outcome and some people praise them as you know close to jesus and other people think that they're demons that need to be 
uh, exiled out of sport because they didn't score enough points for your mm -hmm. fantasy team. Yeah, social media has not been super helpful in that regard either, I would imagine, for the psyche of an athlete. Yeah, not at all. And so while I'm not, I'm not a physical therapist or a therapist of the mind, however, I still want to read up on these topics. I want to have some sort of functional uh, expertise in them so that I can have somewhat of useful conversations with my athletes because whether I like it or not, they're going to use me as, as somewhat of a therapist. They're going to come to me with their problems. It's one of the, the primary ways that athletes use, uh, especially one-on-one -on -one instances. And, you know, I will always say like, you know, I might not be the best person to talk about this, but this is the way that I like to think about it, or this is what's been useful in my life. Maybe I offer you this perspective or this philosophy. It's up to you to choose it. I think that's a, that's a really interesting way of, of thinking about it. And um, so specifically for us, obviously, we focus on the Seattle Mariners. Um, you know, we are uniquely interested in Mitch Hanniger, um And, you know, from following, uh, you know, Hanniger's careers, especially since he came to Seattle, um, he is, you know, a, a quite a quite a cerebral player maybe one of the smartest i mean not smart, maybe one of the most intellectual or most kind of like john said cerebral oriented baseball players we've ever covered yeah you no know, if if you if anybody out there listening thinks that i'm a deep thinker mitch is on the same level you know he and i he and i get along extremely well and i'm so grateful to have him mm. have him in my life because not only is he a great athlete to work with, he's an excellent conversational partner. And, and he, he matches me on all levels of uh, philosophy from lifestyle, diet, nutrition. He is extremely well-read and, and just as curious as I am. So when you're, when you're working with, you know, it, it can be Hanniger specifically, but, but a, a player or, or an athlete comes to you, um, you know, well, First off, I guess how how did the two of you get sort of linked up and and uh, start start working together? There's another uh, performance facility in the area, and uh, Mitch was having some some issues, some injury issues last year, and he sought me out to get my opinion. Um, I gave him my opinion. We uh, he ended up choosing to get surgery, which you know stopped us from. Uh, working one-on-one -on -one together until he was was ready uh, but we kept the friendship going on we kind of met and within the first few minutes it's like oh yeah we're we're on the same vibe length and or wavelength and um, we would text each other every now and then about questions about this new product that came out or this new new method and then uh, once he was ready to start training again uh, we just picked up picked up running basically and it's been a fantastic process uh since we started working together more more frequently so what are how does a uh, you know someone like hanniger sort of set up their goals uh when, when they come to you you know especially coming off of multiple surgeries coming off of you know a specific you know couple of injuries in you know sports hernia and uh you know disc issue in their lower back like how do you set that up and and what are some of the like risks that you may run in run into especially when you're trying to engage them in so many different sort of types of movement to get their whole body working uh, at top level sure um 
you know, what's interesting is the athletes who see me who have not been hurt yet, they don't, it's not really on their radar. They still kind of think they're invincible. And so it's just all eyes on performance. Those who have had their sport taken away from them from an injury mm-hmm. start to value health and, and understand that there's ways to prevent things. And so my goal for, for all my athletes is, you know, how can they live in an injury-free life? How can we prevent non-contact injury? And on the same side, get them playing beyond their wildest dreams. And I, and I don't think those are, those are two separate things. I think they're on the same spectrum, that the further we get away from injury, the closer we get to performance. It doesn't matter how much someone, someone bench presses or squats if they're not able to play because their knee always hurts or, or, or whatnot. There's such a, a fraught relationship with the body, I think, like not just for athletes, but for people in general, uh, body image and, you know, am I thin enough? Am I strong enough? Am I shredded? Like, do I look like I'm supposed to, people have a really, a lot of people have a really tough relationship with their bodies. And when you're an athlete and your body gets taken away from you and you can't do your job anymore, it can set up kind of an adversarial relationship. Why is my knee failing me? So this idea of, of approaching things through play, I think is really redefining the relationship with the body, making your body your friend, not your adversary. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not their knee that's failing them. It's the environment that they're in that's failing them. Mm. There's no there's no wild horses out there that have failing knees. Lions don't have an ACL epidemic from trying to chase too many gazelle. We have all these <laughs> issues. <laughs> we have all these issues because of the environments that we're in and the lifestyles we choose to lead. So for me, based on what we know about pretty much every other species on the planet, injuries are a modern human problem, which to me means they are completely preventable. The reasons why someone's knee is failing them is A, because their environment, B, because modern science fails to have a holistic view on things. And from what I understand, I'm the only one looking at things evolutionarily. And the results that I've had I've had some athletes come to me somewhat as their last resort. And then through these methods, and I'm not trying to diagnose their injury. I'm not trying to fix them. I'm trying to get them move how evolution designed. I'm trying to get them move how how humans are supposed to move. And then they're not hurt anymore. And so for me, my intention is to control what we can control, which is how they move. And pain is something that's uncontrollable, nor is that what I'm trying to diagnose or fix. I'm trying to get them to move how humans have moved over the last hundreds of thousands of years and products of 400 millions of years of movement on land. So what are some of the more challenging, uh, rewarding sort of uh, things that some of some of your athletes, or, or even Hanniger specifically, uh, what what are some of those more challenging or, or rewarding moments uh, when they're doing some of the uncommon? I don't know. The uncommon is the right word, but but the, oh, the more uncommon. creative. I think well, uncommon. I mean, there's but, a it, but it doesn't I get opened, to all of it. <laughs> when I opened Instagram and saw Mitch Hanniger lying on the on a mat, gator wrestling a giant sandbag, I was like, what? What is going on here? <laughs> what is Absolutely. this? Well, because uncommon is very accurate. Um, yeah, but, you know, cause I, I, you know, I played 
very, very low-level college baseball, um, which means you do all the normal stuff, but then no one's actually that good at it. Um, and, and well, you know, some people, but, uh, you know, we <laughs> very few of us. But I think it was really interesting to see sort of some of the ways in which, you know, it, it's very immediately, I think, uh, you know, hearing you describe, like, just watching how people move and, and immediately thinking about, like, what, how, why are they doing that? How does that impact this? Like, watching people sort of working through climbing walls to, you know, hanging pull-ups and, and you know, these full-body, uh, you know, engagement exercises. I think it's really... It fascinating and it, and it's it is um, you can see how it is engaging and strengthening your bodies, but I wonder you know how do players who often probably have been doing more uh, less dynamic or, or more sort of straightforward uh, weight training for much of their lives how does that response go how does that progress uh, it goes really well. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I swear, they do keep coming back. Next so, question. yeah. <laughs> I mean, th- this is this is uh, this is the typical story, um, and I'll go with professional athletes because they've typically done everything under the sun. They have a very limited view of what's possible for them. They come to me for one reason or another. I start getting them doing very uncommon things, and then within a few <laughs> weeks, they're like. What, what voodoo magic is this? I feel better than I ever have before. Why isn't everyone doing this? Like, wh- why is everybody so scared to do something different? I don't, I don't get it. And um, <clears throat> one of the other pro athletes that I've been working with for several years, uh, it's a continual process of betterment. And he, he plays in the NFL. And this year, the, the rewards... This is Weston this is, Schweitzer? This is, yeah, this is Wes. Um who's the, an offensive lineman for the Washington football team as they're currently known <laughs> yes <laughs> and who weighs something like 300 something ish pounds and 330 you, you have some amazing just amazing flexibility and motion of him just like just really looking graceful which i don't think is a word you often append to somebody who weighs 330 pounds he is extremely graceful and some of the some of the results of that is I'll give you a few snippets of text messages he sent me after, you know, Sunday evening after a game. Um, my body is doing things I've never done before. I, my body feels so good. I don't, don't even think I can have a non-contact injury. Wow. I, I went against a 15 year uh, all-star future hall of famer and after the game he's like no one has pushed me around like that before what are you doing wow wow so these these are the kinds of results you know and and it's um it's cha- it's an intellectual challenge to get them there but it has been pretty consistent with with the people that i work with which is so rewarding and and, and it's these subtle moments in the gym too where even with masks on uh, right now, you, I'm perceptive enough to see when their facial musculature contracts a smile underneath there. And that, <laughs> that sure. stuff is rewarding as well. You know, those are the, the little bits that's, oh, we're on the right track. He's, he's having some fun or she's having a really good time or she's proud of herself. 
I guess there's not really like a a typical day at the facility, but if if you were just to kind of speak generally, like if Mitch Haniger showed up, what would a what would a day look like? Um, he'll be here t- later today. A day starts before I'm at the gym, um, so I will see Mitch later today. I will start planning his session uh, about an hour beforehand. Uh, I've somewhat planned it in my mind. Uh, my mind has a way of going about what the next thing is, whether I have a choice in that or not, so I kind of just let it happen. <laughs> um, and then we'll train together for three hours. Uh, we, I see Mitch almost 10 hours a week, and he, we start off with more... Things that would look like therapy. I would not call them therapy, but if you were to watch or be a fly on the wall, you might categorize it as that. I look at it as, okay, what, what joints or muscles need more individual isolated attention where you know, I can give them the most evolutionary-based, holistic, whole-body movement and still our body is just so good at finding ways t- to move even if things aren't working well. We have so many redundancies built into our system, which is why we don't have more athletes getting hurt, even though I I think they they should Mm -hmm. and we're going that way. Mm -hmm. So we'll do a lot of isolated work, not only around past injuries, but just, so for instance, I I make subtle observations about how his uh, collarbone goes into his sternum, and that tells me uh, some sort of predictive measure about how his left shoulder is functioning. And he'll say, my left shoulder's never had issues. And I say, great, let's keep it that way. And so we will <laughs> um, we will address those predictions. I mean, I, I think injury, for, for me, injury is very predictable. I play a game all the time where I'm watching pro athletes on TV and I think, oh yeah, you know, he's, he's probably going to have an Achilles issue in the next year or two. And that's just a fun game for me. I'm not guaranteeing anything. Sometimes it never happens. Sometimes it does. And I hate when I'm right. Um, but I've learned enough lessons working with the athletes that I'm, that I've been working with that I can't ignore those, those subtle observations that I have of, for instance, how his collarbone goes into his sternum. And then, uh, that'll be 45 minutes of work. And then we start doing, uh, we have a session, a, a section in my plan called play where it's, he, he leads a lot of the session. He might get on the climbing wall and have very little instruction from me. I might intervene or guide him uh, one way or another or, or, yeah, guide him one way or another. And then um, some of the stuff might just be fun. And I think that there's a useful and purposeful benefit from it. But there's also this fear in sports culture of, oh, God, if I don't do something that's directly benefiting my, my sport, I should never do it. And that is not at all why any athletes started playing the sport in the first place. They did it because it's fun and because they didn't get anything in return. They enjoyed it for, for it, and that, that's it. And so I want people to fall in love with movement. I want to feed people to fall in love with the process of understanding their own bodies becoming more and more aware of what they can can do or what their challenges are. So much of what I do it revolves around increasing someone's awareness of their own body. 
to make a race car analogy, there's a ton of excellent drivers out there that have no idea what the car is. They don't, they can't separate the left wheel from the right wheel and, and how the steering wheel turns them. And so through these playful and novel experiences, I increase their awareness of their own body. If their awareness of their own body goes up, then what they're able to do uh, on game day is also going up. After our playful session, we'll typically hit kind of the main entree, if you will, the thing that's going to take up the, the most room <laughs> in their, their stomach. Um, the something that you know will cost the most amount of movement and money. And so that might be what you generically see in other gyms where uh, like today, Mitch and I are going to squat really freaking heavy. Um, he's, uh, he's extremely mobile and for our goals, I actually want to stiffen up some of his tissues to become a little bit more tolerant and a little bit more conducive for performance. Um, and then after we kind of have the main entree out of the way, we will have a few hors d'oeuvres and appetizers that are specific to how his body should move as a human. And then, uh, you know, playing any, any one sport is, is poison. Sport is a poison on the body when we start specializing it. And so how I like to word it and, and think about it is he's going to be ingesting poison for several months of the year. How do we inoculate him? Somewhat like uh, the main character in Princess Bride inoculates himself to the poison that he, he gives <laughs> the guy. Yep. Um, and so I have kind of an inoculation series for Mitch. And then we have some antidotes, things that going uh, that somewhat try to reverse the effects of playing a career of baseball. Ooh. I, do you get pushback from an athlete when you say your sport is poison? Because that just feels like anathema to anything that is um, currently talked about. I cannot um, imagine no. a, a, a typical athlete showing up at a gym to be to get their off-season training. This is going to help me be a better baseball player. And for the trainer to say, yeah, your sport is poison. It's slowly killing you. No, they're like, <laughs> finally, someone sees it. This is not normal. Thank God. What is everybody else smoking? I don't mind pulling back the curtain. I'm not happy with the state of the state of affairs and performance. Again, so it's it's always that buy-in of getting them to come in the door, right? To get them to come to this this different approach to movement. Um, what, but, once they're in the door, they're kind of already bought in. I'm not right. easy to find, and they've probably already <laughs> found found me on Instagram. They know I'm doing uncommon stuff, but the the word of mouth that gets them in the door is is the buy-in. There's, I don't know how many other people that are hearing about me and thinking about seeing me, but they're not yet bought in because they don't mm -hmm. believe the stories or, mm -hmm. or whatever. So w once they're in the gym, they're, they're bought in. They're just like, you know, very, um, uh, almost like deer in headlights kind of look like, okay, I know I'm getting, you know, getting thrown in the deep end here and I have no idea what to expect, but... I'm ready to say yes. Is there a, a link between, do you see any similarities between, because you work with athletes from baseball, football, volleyball, obviously, uh, all these different, across these different sports, what's kind of the common thread uh, between the athletes who choose to seek you out? 
you know, I was asked this question the other day by a, a good friend in New Zealand, and to be honest, the, the common thread is mentorship. They want someone in their corner, someone who cares about them. And everybody listening probably thinks of Mitch as this superstar that, and they would swarm him for his autograph. And I just see him as a person, and that's what they want to be seen as. They want to be the seen as the human being they are, not the paycheck, not the ride to fame. Um, and this, and then it's a different sort of me, uh, form of mentorship for the, the younger kids that I work with. But ultimately, they just want someone in their corner who cares about them more than their paycheck or their performance. That would be the common thread. The next one would be getting them to move like a human again um, instead of the, the specialized athlete that they are. To pick that up a little, I think specifically with Hanniger here, because he's had these injuries, it's almost like your body gets litigated away from you in the media, in like, it's almost like the ownership gets taken away from you um, in people discussing, is he going to, is he going to return to form? And you know, blah, blah, blah. so injury, your injury prone is, I think, like, you talk about something that feels poisonous to be labeled when you're a, an athlete, injury prone is one of the, the dirtiest things that can be appended to you. So I think just there's a process here too that's it feels like recovery in some ways or it feels like reclaiming ownership of his body of his self yeah i mean pro sports they are pieces of meat they are chess pieces mm -hmm. they are they are dispensable and that is that is such a disgrace to them as people and i would say the the best the best dynasties in sports history see them as people they value relationships they value culture and i don't think anyone any person is injury prone it's the environment that they're in that has created that that fragility um or the staff that they have surrounded themselves with that un unfortunately I, I don't want to blame any staff they just don't know any better because culture has programmed them programmed them a certain way and especially sports performance culture it's it's highly you know, there's definitely some toxic ma masculinity that goes around where the ego wants to take control of this yep. and, and deflect, oh, that, that's not my fault. I'm perfect. I did my job. So, you know, please don't, don't tell the boss because I don't want to get fired. And so I will treat you like a piece of me. And that's somewhat the difference between um, myself and, and people employed by, by an organization. I'm employed by Mitch. I'm employed by Wes. I'm employed by all these different athletes. And so if I were to take the same value of like, I want to protect my job, I need to value my relationship with them. I need to value them as a person. They are not dispensable. Uh, is there any athlete who you would just love to work with? Like somebody who you admire or who you think you could particularly help or... Who, who is your kind of dream client? Mitch is my dream client. <laughs> not, not because he's, it's not because he's a professional baseball player. It's not because he's an all-star. It's because of who he is as a person. The kids that I work with that I've, I've been working with since they were 13, they are my dream clients. It's not about, for me, it's not about the, the fame or how good they are or how much they get paid. It's, 
I mean, I'm spending a lot of my, I'm spending 10 hours a week with Mitch. I want to like him. I want to enjoy my time with him. It's very you know? fair. Uh, it's my time. It's my life. That That's, I'm going to be spending with him. And that, that time is really valuable more than just as a business sense, but as a, mm. as a life sense. I want to learn things from my athletes. I want them to offer me, them, uh, offer me perspectives. I suppose maybe maybe a different way of going about because I think that makes plenty of the, the point on ten hours a week with a person. I'd like to enjoy that that experience. Um, are there athletes? You know, I know you mentioned, you know, watching people doing potentially things differently than they should and wondering as you've grown up, you know, why are they moving that way? Are there? Not even necessarily example athletes, but like, mm-hmm. are there people that you watch that you see and you're like, yes, that's that that person moves really well. That person, you know, this is someone that we should look at as as an example um, when when you're trying to either get inspiration or trying to encourage your yeah. your athletes. Uh, the topic, the the perfect movers. If I had a category for them, one would be Lionel Messi. Mm-hmm. Um, he just had an excellent environment growing up to make him one of the best moving soccer players. And it's funny the, the word people call him an alien or, and he plays out of this world <laughs> or whatever. And I'm like, dude, he's just a normal functioning human in a, in a sea of dysfunction. <laughs> That's a very uh, nice way of thinking about it. It's, it's not abnormal. It's that everybody else is abnormal. <laughs> um, could I still help him? I think so. Uh, the practices that I see him, I mean, the types of lifts that I've seen him do, it's incredibly reductionist and, and old school. Uh, and it, you know, he gets paid $20,000 a minute to do, <laughs> to do practices based on uh, assumptions and traditions. The, the practices of how he, you go to Barcelona, you're going to see them dancing around cones and mannequins thinking that it's going to get better. Look, Messi can take on three or four of the best <laughs> defenders in in soccer and win, and yet he's still getting paid twenty thousand dollars a minute to dance around a mannequin as if that's going to get him better. <laughs> you see, Sports Center post things on Instagram of James Harden making ten out of ten uncontested free throws and be like, "Oh, what a shot!" No, I mean, <laughs> of course he makes ten out of ten uncontested free throws, but that's not practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's as useful for procreation as a you know sixteen-year-old boy locked in his room with an internet connection. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's these kinds of people that I would love to help not only on the skill side. So I like just the movement side is one 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 niche that I like to to care about. But it doesn't matter if they move well in the gym if they can't apply that to skill. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to work with Formula One teams and pit crews and how they design practice. Like I've seen how the lower tier teams design their pit crew practice and it's not as good as the, the upper tier teams and it doesn't follow a lot of research based, based on research of, of how skills uh, manifest within, within athletes. Um, I'd love to work with intrinsically motivated athletes who are wondering like, why won't my body do what I want it to do? Or... I think I can perform higher. I'm just not getting the help that I need. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah, that that is extremely helpful and, and I think is a really interesting way of thinking about it because, yeah, I mean, it, when, I mean, trying to, you know, a big part of this is wanting to understand your mindset and I think 
particularly you mentioning like Formula One. I mean, I would, you know, when I when I think when I look at that, I look at, I mean, yes, I know the pit crew is very important, but it's like, you know, you're looking at the car, or you're looking at, you know, okay, you're if you're looking at a baseball game, you know, okay, you're looking at, well, how good how good is this player's bat speed versus how good is this pitcher's velocity or or whatnot, and those things are really important, but you know, it's equally important to be able to react in, in, in all these different ways and have your body uh, working fluidly. So th- that is very interesting. Thank you. I mean, their, their bat speed doesn't matter if they're not healthy enough to apply that bat speed. Yeah, absolutely. It's I'm a, a little a, curious after the discussion of uh, free throws, though, and uncontested and that not uh, being procreative, um, what you <laughs> feel about batting practice, which I feel uh, like is kind of equivalent to... Yeah, it's it's old school. Um, yep. uh, <laughs> I mean, there's okay. The skill of hitting a ball is is two main things. One, you need to be able to predict somebody else's behavior. The reason why uh, a baseball player, a professional baseball player, can hit a ball is they notice a subtle flick of the wrist that results in ah, I think the ball is going to end up in this zip code. <laughs> Okay, the second skill is object trajectory. Once it leaves their hand, it has a predictable trajectory. The better athletes are able to predict the pitcher and the trajectory of the ball. So when people hit off of a tee, that does nothing for those two skills. So what tee, uh, tee practice would offer is, okay, can I take my awareness internally how am I turning my right leg if I'm a right-handed batter or, or left le- left-handed batter, whatever, to apply force on the ball? Do I have sound principles there or am I following some old-school tradition? Um, and so that, that allows focus to go, go internally where they change how their body moves. Once they start hitting from a machine, um, that's not going to help them hit off of a pitcher. It's going to help them track the ball a little bit better, but... The, the real the real meat and potatoes is how early can you predict where the ball is going to be and that comes from predicting the pitcher so you need to be seeing live throws often um, but again it's like everyone's kind of taking the same swing at the ball and if we zoom out and we strip away the romanticized no, notion of baseball and what a swing is supposed to look like and you know that good old American powerful swing mm-hmm. of whatever it's just how can you make contact with the ball? The most skillful athletes can adapt to different ball positions by changing their body. We can reverse that and change their body to hit the ball in the same uh, that uh, shows up in the same way from a machine. So the skill is how many different ways can can you skin the cat? And this is known research. This has been around for decades. However the egoic attachments within sport are like, oh God, if he makes a mistake or if he switches his swing up and can't hit the ball, oh God, I'm going to get fired. And Mm -hmm. rather than I would say like, what, are you incapable to to hit a ball because your foot is six inches to the left? That's a problem. You're a professional baseball player. Move your foot six inches (laughs) to the left and try to make contact (laughs) with the ball. That's opportunity. That is skill. People are just looking in the wrong directions and so terrified. There's so much fear in professional sports. 
Yeah, well, it's super, super high stakes. So if you were... Able- I would say it's, it's high stakes not to. That's the right. risk. You That's know, fair. That, it's the, the risk is like, you mean I'm vulnerable if I move my foot six inches to the left? Oh, God, that, that is the risk. So that's a really scary place for athletes, I think, because it's so drilled in, especially in baseball, like it is so drilled into uh, your swing has to be consistent. Like you can make adjustments, but it feels like the, that you have to stay within your process. And blah, blah, blah. So if you were to design a, a pregame, you know, we see pregame work, they take infield, they take outfield. Um, there are pitcher bullpens, um, there's batting practice, there's some stretching on the field. What would you propose as an alternative to that traditional pregame work? Um, first I have to comment, uh, it's only scary if they don't have confidence in their own abilities. Mm. If they have confidence in their abilities to adapt, like, oh yeah, I learned how to hit a ball before, I can learn how to hit a ball again. Um... And so that, that's one of the like, psychological benefits of making these changes is you continually prove to yourself that you can rise to the mm-hmm. challenge, that you are adaptable. Um, how I would change practice. Uh, <laughs> where do we start and how much time do I have? <laughs> <laughs> um, traditionally, there's too much focus on repetition. There's too much fear of mistakes mistakes a lost game is the most bespoke tailored recipe for your own practice mistakes need to happen they cannot be punished there's plenty of research to be done that everything that is punished uh, of it creates avoidance type of behaviors Mm -hmm. this is not just humans it's just life it's an emotional pain and the way life has evolved to deal with pain is avoid it and so when you make mistakes a pain point for athletes they're gonna avoid it then they're gonna be terrified to make changes in their swing or changes in their practice because oh god that 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 pissed off the coach i don't want to do that again let me just go back to the the way things have always been done which is also what to say about sports culture we want to have a stranglehold on batting so we bat 400 times the same way every single day and we think we're getting better just because we expend energy and it's really i mean batting practice is more like a p90x class where it's just caloric expenditure with a bat in their hands and a ball somewhere in the air (laughs) it's not skill it's not practice it's just trying to create security for the ego of like oh yes i got better today when they really didn't Mm. um they need to have more competitive scenarios, more, more playful scenarios uh, that challenge their abilities. There's, I would break the rules that are considered sacrilegious. What happens if you only have six fielders? What happens if you have 12 fielders? You know, what happens if, you put the, if you're going to hit it from a machine? What if you move that six inches to the left and it comes at you at a slightly different angle? We need to take, we're obligated to take these, what people would call risks, if we want to enhance the skill of our athletes. People think that we're close to the, our potential as a human species, and I would just roll my eyes at that if you could see me, because 
the way we practice our sports is is not conducive towards skill benefit uh, skill betterment it's conducive to people keeping their jobs and staying safe mm-hmm. within their little f- false senses of security we are obligated as a species to adapt that's part of what makes us intelligent and the majority of sports practices across the world especially at the professional leagues fail to ask our athletes to adapt it all kind of makes sense and then I think about actually making that change like baseball is so slow to change we actually woke up this morning to the news that baseball's hired its first ever female GM just somebody who's been working in the sport for 30 years plus who um but that's how long changes to come and I mean I only know baseball as a sport so I can really only speak to that but that's how long it took for that change to happen. So I'm thinking about what you're saying and about, uh, you know, this idea of breaking batting practice and uh, it's wild. And I wonder what team is going to be the first to gain that competitive edge by, by being bold and taking a risk like that. Uh, it'll be a team unlike any other that will create a, I think, a, I mean, I'm a wishful thinker, but it'll create a dynasty unlike sport has ever seen. I just think I say that because of how archaic practices are. Mhm. The I mean it it the more you talk the more I see how it it flies in the face of because it is it's regimented the goal of practice is to have something be the same every day and that's such a basic core concept right is like the famous oh, Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And um, yeah, the lionizing of everything being the same all the time and that consistency is rewarded and valorized. Um, we're still we're still toking the illusion of the assembly line. You know, it had played such mm-hmm. a big, big role in this culture's development and it seeped into our... I mean, the reason why we have eight-hour workdays is because... Uh, Henry Ford thought, oh yeah, eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. Just divided 24 by three. Uh, Then it seeped into our school of how do we get workers to just sit sit still for eight hours. Oh yeah, let's put all our youth in institutions that demand that they do one thing for eight hours. And we're still doing it in sport. Okay, what are we going to do? Right, we're going to do the same thing over and over again and think we're getting better. Does not work. And well, I mean, it did. I, it doesn't anymore, though. A lot of educational theorists have pointed out that same thing that you just pointed out, the link between um, the eight-hour workday and the way that we divide kids. Because if you want to talk about a place where play is being sucked away and where uh, regimented practice is, I mean, that's absolutely the traditional model of schooling. So it would make sense that because sport is part of society and school is part of society, that those two institutions would mirror each other. But there is a better way, you're saying. Yeah, there is. Much better way. And it's been known for a long time. (laughs) The question is getting people there. Yeah. My ideas aren't new. I'm just outspoken about them. Mm. I mean, my evolution ideas are new, and the way I look at skill is new, but having practices that resemble games and require adaptation and ask for mistakes. Those are well-researched practices. One thing I was 
going to ask you about is um, some of the challenges, because I keep coming back to this idea of play. And, you know, it's funny because they are players, and yet there is not a lot of play in how we train athletes anymore is what is becoming abundantly clear over the course of this conversation. Um, so what are some of the challenges in that more play, in getting people to accept a more play-based approach in an industry that is very focused on, like, the grind and making gains and, like, do it till it hurts. And there's this whole thing about punishing your body, and that's how you know you got a good workout, because it hurts, because you've punished yourself and something. That seems like such a toxic and yet such an ingrained idea. Yeah, I mean, I think that the external way we show our behavior might resemble somewhat of the internal way that we relate to ourselves, that we feel that we must suffer to be worthy of greatness. Mm. Um, I think that's a lot of, a lot of athletes is like, Oh, I finally suffered enough to think what good of myself. And now I have to suffer for me to continue to think positively about myself when there's nothing interfering with them thinking positively about themselves. I mean, if you look at the science, uh, so after a one rep max, lift you know someone really suffering to their their upper limits of like physical potential Mm -hmm. that'll do enough damage where they're recovering for 10 to 21 days 10 to 21 days and so in one sense you could tell an athlete great i mean you you hit that lift for the month and then we don't need to do that again now it's about asking for recovery now, I, I want to be careful with that because I don't want athletes to start uh, training once a month uh, with <laughs> high-intensity lifts. There's a delicate balance to be had where <laughs> there needs to be somewhat of a, a chronic training load, a, a poison, if you will, uh, to keep people tolerant of the poison and in inoculation, as well as prioritizing recovery. You know, Mitch and I talk about sleep a lot, and what I told him is sleep is your steroids, that needs to be your biggest priority. And he's like, yeah, I know. Why doesn't anybody else prioritize it? Ah. And, you know, then we get into a conversation of, of agreements. Um, a conversation of agreements. Well, yeah. I mean, Mitch was, Mitch was teammates with uh, Nelson Cruz, a famous napper, famous, yeah. famously interested in sleep. So mm-hmm. I know he had at least one teammate who understand, understood the importance. Yeah, I mean... Mitch is the kind of guy who would hear that from another athlete and be like, okay, that's an interesting perspective. I like it. I'm going to do my own research now. And then he'll come back having listened to three audiobooks and one, uh, one Blinkist and, and 10 different podcasts. And then he's asking me like, hey, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And what do you think about this? And, and, and to go back to like the kind of athletes that I want to work with, it's, oh, shit, I need to, if I'm supposed to be the expert here, I need to catch up. I need to learn from Mitch and then, all right, how do I become a a good reference point for him or a sounding board? Mm. Which, I mean, keeps you making your, keeps your practice fresh too, right? Those are the, I understand more now why you said Mitch was your ideal athlete to train. Yeah. I mean, and this isn't just, there's others as well. Like the people that I've been working for, working with and working for, for years of, typically the people I get along with best and are very similar to Mitch. And my dream is that they're all together training at the same time one day, but you know, COVID (laughs) prevents that a little bit. And 
also it's like well they all need one-on-one -on -one attention so can't do that but i you know pre-covid times i would create the schedule where they would rub elbows with one another and, and also with some of the kids i like that um the kids learning to have the type of work ethic that is needed uh, are able to see what the pros are doing and, and how to emulate that hmm. i'm still stuck on this idea i'm a slow processor I'm still stuck on this idea of the myth of we must suffer in order to be great, because I'm thinking mm -hmm. about all the different ways that that is that myth pervades our culture. I think like it it's in sports, it's in the arts, like, oh, you have to be a, a suffering artist. You have to live this life of like debauchery and despair in order to make great art, in order to really you know, see the darkness. It's it's a very pervasive myth, I think. I, I completely agree. I mean, the the type of philosophy, the philosophies that I like have been around for thousands of years, and a lot of them have to do with this. I mean, I, I, I like Buddhism. I like uh, I like the Tao Te Ching, and and a lot of it will talk about their attachments and attachments to doing, and that mm -hmm. oh, you know, I only feel worthy if I have a forty hour work week. <laughs> no, that, that that's that's not true because if you don't like before you had a 40 hour work week you still felt worthy of you well you may not have but like with or without that you can feel worthy other people can so you're not that special as to the point where like oh you're you need 40 hours but somebody else doesn't to feel worthy it's there for the taking but society doesn't doesn't value that i mean the if i may offer a perspective shift here if we look at society as its own organism the, the organism of culture, the organism of culture benefits when all of its worker ants, all of its cells do a lot of work. It, it benefits culture. But is it useful for you? Not really. And, and you can have the same perspective shift where you look at your own mitochondria, the, the, the powerhouse of the cell. You want that thing to be to be working 24 seven oh, yeah. for you. You don't care if it has feelings. Work. <laughs> Work, work, and work. And that's kind of the same thing we have uh, with ourselves and, and culture. As culture values that amount of 24-7 work. And we mm -hmm. just, we have the power of consciousness and we have the ability to choose and say, oh, that's not how I want to live my life. And you can become a culture of one or a culture of, of a few. And that's called a family or a team. Um, so... I feel like we're we're talking about some ideas that are really big. Uh, what is something that somebody who's not an athlete, just the average Joe, what is something that they can take away from your work in order to move better? Uh, I mean, all of my movements are somewhat of meditative. I'm asking them to be more aware of where their body is in space. Gen generally, Exercises defined as moving this external object from A to B. A deadlift is often defined as there's a weight on the ground and now it's not on the ground because you picked it up. For me, all movement is defined by where the bones are positioned. Muscles evolved to move bones, so mm -hmm. I want to focus on the bones. If you were to draw a skeleton of yourself or a, a simple stick figure, what shape do you make? Where is your body in space? I almost guarantee that 
people watch others running or lifting and see their back rounding. They're like, oh, God, don't want to be that guy. And then they go and lift the weight <laughs> the exact same way, being that guy. And they're just completely oblivious to it. Uh, so it's so funny. I mean, we, we judge other people where we probably need to look the most within ourselves. Mm-hmm. You see somebody running and their knees are knocked, their feet are going out, or they're just barely having any sort of time off the ground. And they're like, oh, man, that doesn't look, that looks painful. And so we have the power and technology to like film yourself, look at yourself in the mirror. I think we have intuitive, uh, more intuitive abilities than we let on to reposition our bodies in exercise and sport. Um, To be more internally aware of your feelings, where your bones are positioned, how you feel about exercise, how you feel about, how you relate to exercise that, oh, I need to exercise today to feel that I I am worthwhile, that I am um, whole, that I, the other way is I refuse to be happy unless I grind. And that statement just isn't be, isn't true. You were happy without your grind, and so why are you attached to that? Ask these curious questions, and you don't even need to answer them. I find there's a lot of power in just being inquisitive about your thoughts and what you do and how you do it, your, your feelings, your emotions, whether you let them flow or not, and why you care so much about other people's opinions. And, and one you know small tangent about that is it's really popular right now to say, Oh, yeah, I don't care what they think when it's a negative opinion. But when it's praise, oh, God, give it to me. Give me the attention. Please tell me how good I am. Yes. And it's, mm-hmm. you can't. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please, God, tell me. How, everyone who's listening to this, go on my Instagram. Tell me how good you and how much you enjoy this. Uh, it's really hard to, to detach from the negative opinions when we cling to the positive wow. ones. Yeah, well, there's, <laughs> there's some there's some meditation I need to do on these, on these ideas. Um, what strikes me is how applicable a lot of these things that we've talked about are just for general people, you know, not athletes, just how to live a better life. Um, you mentioned a book earlier. What's the what's next for you what are you because again i think these are ideas that could help everyone uh what's the status on that what what's what's coming next for you uh the book is in the works um after two years of of you know uh, trying to write a book not being an author i finally found my editor and so she has an amazing help and we're in that stage um of reviews and edits I'm I'm crossing my fingers that it's done by by next spring, next summer, and and I think it's that'll be a more appropriate time when well, the rumors are that COVID will start to really be less of a thing and sports will be more normalized. Um, so I'm hoping to release around then. Uh, any updates you want on the book can be found uh, by subscribing to updates at my website, which is just www.apiros.team. You can also find uh, information about me, what I do, and the athletes that I work with um, at on, on Instagram mainly, which is also at apiros.team. And yeah, I mean, the book will be a lot of philosophy. It will be about skill, and it will be about how we have evolved to move. The, the goal of the book is, the, the subtitle of the book is what I know. It's the extinction of injury and the evolution of performance. 
and that's largely what the content is as well. Woof. Well, I feel very blessed that we had you on the podcast early uh, because I feel like come next year you might be too far, too high in demand for us, <laughs> for little old us. Yes, uh, thank are- God, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, these are these are some ideas that if people are smart and they aren't always, uh, they'll they'll start to gain some traction because obviously, like you said, we do have an injury epidemic, um, and there's so much focus on treating it and not so much on preventing it. Or there there's a shift towards that, but I don't think people totally understand how to prevent it. I imagine that once the New York Yankees listen to this podcast, as I'm sure they will, mm-hmm. uh, they will, you will find a sack thrown over your head and you'll be dragged away on a private jet <laughs> to the Bronx. <laughs> Lovely. Um, so, I was, congratulations I was, in advance you're on welcome. your new position with the Yankees. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed my time with you. And so next year, if, if any of that happens, I would more than love to talk to you guys again at, at any point. Um, I enjoyed spending my time with you and I would love to do that again. And w- one funny comment I, or perspective shift about injuries is if these, this amount of injuries was seen 2,000 years ago, it would have shown up in the Bible as the great <laughs> plague of injury. <laughs> it's just... It's just slowly happened over so many years that it's just normal. This is abnormal, and nobody's really doing much about it. Yep. Uh, it's our it's our modern day locusts, and uh, I don't know what else came in the plagues. I'm not good enough frogs. in my Bible. Frogs. Raining, raining frogs. Yeah. Boils. Frogs, yeah. Boils. <laughs> frogs. Yeah, sure. Frogs, boils, and ACL injuries. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll go back and check the Bible. I'm pretty sure there's some <laughs> yeah. mention of ACLs in there. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Austin, so much for spending this time with us. Uh, I really learned a lot. I hope Absolutely. you all learned a lot. And uh, we look forward to what's coming. Obviously, we wish Mitch the best going forward, and uh, please pass along our best wishes to him. Will do. Uh, I'm pretty excited to see these philosophies come alive in his play next year. So, which will be play and not work. Oh yeah, he he knows how to do that for sure. So, thank you again so much, and uh, thanks for listening to this. And we'll talk to you again next time. Bye.